0: just don't give up trying to do what you really want to do where there is love and inspiration i don't think you can go wrong ella fitzgerald warning the following podcast contains mature content listener discretion is advised hello and welcome to the jury room where we dissect some of the most heinous some of the most unthinkable And some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. On today's episode, the giggling granny who poisoned 11 people, including her own mother, children, and grandchildren. This is Nanny Doss. He got on my nerves, said the giggling grandmother, 49-year-old Nancy Nanny Doss, to the authorities who were interrogating her. He sure did like prunes. I fixed him a whole box full, and he ate them all. Her husband, Sam Doss, was found dead in the living room, with enough arsenic in his digestive tract to kill a herd of horses. His supposedly doting wife, who cooked him dinners and performed the housework, had a hearty laugh and a sweet demeanor, murdered him in cold blood. He irritated her with his nags and his strong Christian values. She needed him to just shut up. Sam Doss, the unsuspecting Oklahoman, who was the 11th victim of the giggling granny's killing spree, that lasted over 20 years, between 1927 and 1954. Unfortunately for Sam, Nanny's previous husbands were not around to warn him not to eat the prunes or drink the coffee. Nancy Hazel, known from a young age as Nanny, was born in the small, rugged town of Blue Mountain, Alabama in 1905. Her parents, James and Lou were farmers, fully dedicated to their work, with no time to spend on family activities, vacations, or anything that did not serve the farm. James ruled the household with an iron fist. He was verbally and physically abusive to the little girl and her four siblings and to his wife Lou. He was not afraid to use the switch when a family member disobeyed his firm orders. James did not believe in the value of education and would regularly keep his children home from school so they could work on the farm. Little Nanny spent the majority of her childhood working long, hot, miserable days in the field. According to Terry Manners, author of The Deadlier Than Male, By the age of five, Nanny was made to cut wood, plow the fields, and clear the land of weeds and debris. Ball games and seeing friends were forbidden. It's unclear if the strict and joyless head of the household was actually Nanny's biological father. According to records, there was a time in Nanny's infancy where she lived alone with her mother. James seemed to appear out of nowhere when Nanny was still quite young. Still, the girl took his last name and was raised to believe that he was her biological father. She had no choice but to follow the man's household rules and orders. Still, Nanny spent her time fantasizing about a life of adventure and romance. Manners explains that nanny who had terrible mood swings dreamed of love and of finding her own Prince Charming. Her only interest was her mother's romantic magazines and she would sit for hours in her bedroom just looking at couples staring out at her from the pages. She dreamed of being rescued by a knight in shining armor who would sweep her from the mundane life and shower her with love and affection. However, whenever she did get the time to herself, free for a moment from her farm duties, her head would be buried in a romance magazine. For Nanny, a heroic man was the answer to all of her problems. She was simply a damsel in distress, and in time, she would be saved by her prince. She was sure of it. It's unclear why Nanny was so obsessed with romance from such a young age, but some reports say that the child may have suffered from sexual abuse at the hands of her distant relatives or family friends. These reports are only speculative, but if true, they might point to Nanny's obsession with male attention and affection. She simultaneously sought the male gaze and distrusted it. As though she knew somewhere inside of her that true love and happy endings might only exist in fairy tales. And that reality was crueler and darker. Still, she never did give up hope that her prince may come and save her. When Nanny was seven, she was finally given a chance to experience an adventure. Her family was going to take a trip. They were going to visit some distant relatives downstate. Nanny couldn't contain her excitement. She had never been on a train before and couldn't wait to see what the world looked like in motion through the moving train's windows. Unfortunately, Nanny's perfect trip soon took a traumatic turn for the little dreamer. When the train came to a sudden stop, Nanny's head lurched forward and slammed hard against the metal rail on the seat in front of her. The injury was severe and she likely retained damage to her frontal lobe, which may have caused the change in her personality. Nanny lamented to life magazine that the incident changed her life, causing her pains and blackouts for months and headaches for the remainder of my life. The injury was also likely to have caused deep depression in the little girl who was already struggling in a dark and lonely childhood. Still, according to Shelby Green, a distant cousin of Nanny, who studied the granny killer for a decade, people should not be so quick to blame this injury for Nanny's murderous ways, Green says. Nanny just had a plain old mean streak. I'm addicted to genealogy And in studying my family, I have learned that many of our members carried a fierce pride and a tough, tough, tough reputation. While they didn't take lives, they were nonetheless hard people. I believe Nanny bore that trait, but simply took her bad humor dangerously further. Nanny spent so much of her childhood on the farm and away from school that she struggled terribly to keep up with her classwork. She had difficulty paying attention in class the few times she was in attendance. She despised her teacher and classes. The boring, drawn-out days stuck in a stuffy room that reeked like stale chalk and embarrassed that she could not keep up with her fellow students. Her motivation to attend class dwindled with every new school year. The schoolhouse was a two-mile walk there and two miles back, and the burden of that commute led Nanny to skipping classes, even when her father didn't need her on the farm. By the time Nanny reached sixth grade, she dropped out entirely. As Nanny entered her teen years, her yearning for a boyfriend grew stronger. Her father, however, did not allow Nanny to wear makeup or showy dresses. Convinced that doing so would lead boys to molest her, he wanted his daughter on the farm and away from the arms of unpredictable teenage boys. Nanny wanted more than anything to dress like a glamorous woman in her magazines, but there was simply no way she could get away with it. Left wondering how she would ever get a man to look her way, her father assured her that when she was ready, he'd pick a suitable husband for her nanny would not get a say in who she married ever rebellious and determined to find forbidden love nanny became a master at sneaking out of the house late in the night to meet local boys in town she devoured male attention and perhaps to make up for her mundane clothes and lack of pretty makeup let them do what they wanted with her as long as it meant that they were doting on her. These teenage flings never went beyond the ground of a hay stable, but they were enough to give Nanny a sense of brief escape. Still, they failed to satisfy her craving for true romance. In 1921, when Nanny was 16, she began to work at the Linen Thread Company, where she spent her days attached to a sewing machine. It was there that she met Charlie Braggs, a co-worker with a nice smile and a keen affection for Nanny that she had never received before. She casually dated the young man for a few months before introducing him to her father. After a nice dinner, James gave Charlie permission to marry his oldest daughter. Within four months of meeting. The 16-year-old nanny wed Charlie Braggs. While her marriage did grant her escape from exhausting farm labor and a strict father, it wasn't quite the fairy tale happily ever after nanny had thought it would be. Charlie, as it turned out, came with a strong-willed, opinionated mother that nanny would just have to learn to live with. Nanny later wrote that I married, as my father wished, in 1921, to a boy I only knew about four or five months, who had no family, only a mother who was unwed and who had taken over my life completely when we were married. She never seen anything wrong with what he'd done, but she would take spells. Charlie and his mother were incredibly close. Charlie a doting son who had dedicated his life to taking care of her. To Mrs. Bragg's, Charlie could do no wrong. They were two peas in a pod. Unfortunately for Nanny, three's a crowd, and she often found herself the victim of Mrs. Bragg's mood swings and strict behavior. The newlywed teenager learned quickly that while she had escaped the wrath of her father, she had traded it for a monstrous mother-in-law. Nanny was miserable right away. Everything Mrs. Bragg said went. Nanny did not feel like she had a say in the affairs of the household. If Nanny wanted to go out to dinner with her husband, Mrs. Braggs would tag along. If Nanny wanted to go see a movie with her husband, Mrs. Braggs would complain of a stomach ache, and Charlie would stay home to care for her. Nanny felt like a prisoner in her own marriage. Still, Nanny did not give up on the marriage. She mothered four daughters with Charlie in four years and soon became overwhelmed with caring for her large family. She turned to alcohol, sneaking swigs of liquor every chance she could and inhaling cigarettes like oxygen. She began to cheat on her husband regularly releasing her pent-up tension in the beds of men she met at local taverns. Charlie had affairs of his own, often disappearing for days, arm and arm with another woman. Eventually, Charlie's mother passed away from natural causes, but that meant that Nanny had no one to help her with the kids while Charlie was at work. Nanny was beginning to lose her mind in her dead-end marriage and became desperate to lighten her load. In 1927, shortly after the birth of Nanny's fourth daughter, Florine, Nanny served a hearty breakfast to her two middle children. Charlie came home to find his two precious toddlers withering on the floor in agony. They died shortly thereafter. The cause of death was determined as simple, unfortunate, accidental food poisoning. They were not autopsied. Charlie had trouble believing that his two children suddenly passed away from food poisoning. He immediately suspected his wife of foul play. She wasn't acting like the grieving mother she should have been. She seemed cheerful, even giddy, when out of the public eye. Charlie refused to eat anything that his wife cooked for him or drink from any glass she brought his way. Soon after losing two of his children, he took his oldest daughter, Melvina, and fled. He left baby Florine with her mother. Later, Braggs was interviewed by several reporters. According to Shelby Green, Braggs has gone on record to state that he was frightened of his wife, as was his mother and the rest of the family. He never ate or drank anything that she prepared when in a foul mood. Those at the time who knew her less intimately than Charlie might have laughed at his suspicions, for she always appeared domestic and happy. She ceremoniously outlined every meal complete with coffee for Charlie and milk for the kids. Charlie was gone for a year before he finally returned with Malvina and a new girlfriend. He handed his daughter off to Nanny and Florine and kicked the trio out of his life for good. Charlie is the only husband of Nanny's that did not die at her hand. He is known as the one who got away. From now on, Nanny would make sure that no one else did. Nanny moved back in with mom and dad and began work at a cotton mill outside of Blue Mountain. Her days became strikingly and tragically familiar to those of her childhood, made up of tiresome labor and little reward. She arrived home each night to a pair of burdensome children, irritating parents, and no husband to love her. She was still on the search for her prince, who she knew must be out there, just waiting to sweep her off her feet. She started to read the Lonely Hearts column in her local paper. Scouring over the single ads, she wrote to nearly every man who advertised himself in the paper, and when one or two would send her a reply, she cherished it. This is how she met 23-year-old factory worker Frank Harlson in the late 1920s after exchanging a series of letters and care packages, including a cake that Nanny baked for her suitor. Frank traveled from his hometown of Jacksonville, Florida to Blue Mountain, Alabama to meet his sweet Nanny. The two married in 1929 not long after meeting in person for the first time. Just like before, Nanny was surprised to discover that her new husband was not all that she had imagined him to be. Her second marriage was nothing like she had hoped it would be. According to Terry Manners, the rains came and went, the autumn leaves fell, and Nanny and Frank made love by crackling log fires in the winter. But all the time, drink was part of frank's life as the months went on the honeymoon period crumbled and nanny realized that her tall good-looking husband with the square chin and rugged features was an alcoholic frank nanny soon discovered had even spent time behind bars for assault he had a violent streak he was a drunk a felon Nanny was trapped in a marriage with a criminal. The young mother was terrified that she had made a horrible mistake. Unsurprisingly, when considering his colored past and drinking problem, Frank became physically abusive to Nanny pretty quickly, beaten down and losing hope for ever living the life of joy and purity she had so long imagined Nanny succumbed to her loveless and harrowing marriage for 16 years. Still, as Shelby Green remarks, don't get the impression that Nanny was a sympathetic character. She simply had not discovered how to rid herself of a husband. Indeed, while Nanny had gotten away with the senseless and heartless murder of toddlers, a husband was another feat altogether. Children were vulnerable and weak, small and trusting. Her husband was a large, dangerous man. If she tried to kill him, there could be no room for error. Nanny was not yet brave enough to try. While Nanny struggled through her marriage, her two living children grew up and got married. In 1943, Malvina gave birth to a son robert nanny was officially a grandmother two years later in february of 1945 malvina went into labor again nanny doting over her beloved daughter was present to assist with labor for hours she sat at malvina's bedside nurturing her and whispering words of support and encouragement Finally, Malvina gave birth to a beautiful, perfectly healthy little girl. The family rejoiced. Nanny cried, overcome with the joy of meeting her new grandbaby. An hour later, the baby was dead. Malvina, exhausted and in and out of sleep, thought she recalled seeing her mother pick her newborn's head up with a hat pin. Her husband and sister also said they seen Nanny holding a pen, fidgeting with it between her fingers. Throughout the morning, the doctors were not able to determine a definite cause of death. Grief caused Melvina and her husband to separate, and Melvina soon fell in love with the soldier, visiting home in the midst of World War II. Nanny did not like the soldier and demanded that Melvina end things with him. Malvina refused and left for a date night, leaving her two-year-old son, Robert, in Nanny's care. The child died mysteriously that night. Doctors said he died of sudden and unexpected asphyxiation. Again, no autopsy was performed. A few months following little Robert's death, Nanny collected $500 from life insurance that she had taken out on the boy shortly before his accidental passing. Now, the likely murderess of four innocent children, Nanny was becoming more confident in her abilities. It was finally time to end her grueling marriage, once and for all. In September of 1945, America, celebrating their victory in World War II, Frank left the house to visit with, and congratulate, some soldier friends of his, who were finally home safe. He returned home hours later, heavily intoxicated. A blacked out, sloppy Frank asked his wife to have sex with him. Disgusted, Nanny refused. Frank, in a drunken retaliation, punched his hand into the wall and shouted, If you don't listen to me, woman, I ain't gonna be here next week. Nanny relented. As they had sex, Nanny stared at the ceiling and vowed to get even, writes Terry Manners. The next day, tending the little rose garden she adored, she found her husband's corn liquor jar hidden deep in the surrounding flower bed. That was enough. She liked to keep her yard pretty. She took the jar into the storeroom, poured away some of the foul drink and topped it with the rat poison. Harrelson died of excruciating pain, aged just 38. And hours later, Nanny washed out the empty corn liquor jar. Nanny later stated that she married Frank for love But like all of her amours, she loved the continental sound of that word. Frank Harrelson was no Sir Lancelot. Instead, he was a jailbird and a drunkard, and now he was a dead husband. Killing husbands became easier after that. Killing in general had become a cinch. Following Frank's death, Nanny spent time traveling around the country. While this period of her life is not well documented, it is believed that she lived all over the country, from New York to Idaho. Some records say that she married again in this time, to a man named Hendrix, although there is no clear indication of this. If Hendrix did exist, he seems to have vanished just as quickly as he came, perhaps at the hand of his deadly dear wife. After years on the road, Nanny finally settled for some time in Lexington, North Carolina. There, like in every city she had lived in, she obsessed over the lonely hearts column of the local paper. She met her next husband, Arlie Lanning, through the paper, and married him a mere two days later. Nanny was no longer pretending to be the loving and doting life partner. With Arlie, an Alabama native, Nanny wasn't messing around. Every time Arlie flirted with another woman who sucked down some liquor, Nanny would leave for days or months at a time to punish him. She left without a word except for the occasional cablegram asking for money. When Nanny would finally return home, Her new husband barely seemed to notice her care. He'd mumble hello from his position on the couch before passing out drunk. Occasionally, the two would decide to sober up and spend some time together, but this never lasted longer than a few days before they were drinking and abandoning each other again. For her neighbors, Nanny put on quite the display. She disguised herself as the perfect housewife spending hours in the garden, baking in the kitchen, hanging laundry on the lines in the backyard. When she could, she would sink into romance novels or stare into the television screen. Every Sunday in Lexington, Nanny went to church. Sometimes Arlie would join her and the two would mingle with their community, presenting themselves as the perfect Christian couple To the community, Nanny seemed completely harmless. A devoted housewife, a loving mother. That's just what Nanny needed them to believe. When Arlie mysteriously died from heart failure after drinking a cup of his loving wife's coffee, townspeople showed up in masses to support his grieving, widowed wife. She reveled in their attention and sympathy finally receiving the love and support she had always dreamed about. She lamented. He just sat down one morning to drink a cup of coffee and eat a bowl of prunes. I had prepared for him. Up until then, let me tell you, he looked in fine shape. Then, well, two days later, dead. I nursed him. Believe me, I nursed him, but I failed. According to Nanny, the man's last words were, Nanny, it must have been the coffee. No one suspected a thing. Eight short weeks after Arlie's sudden and tragic demise, Nanny's house mysteriously burned to the ground. Nanny was not home at the time. She was safe running errands. And luckily for her, all of her favorite possessions just so happened to be in her car with her at the time, including her television set. Nanny moved in with Arlie's mother, promising to take care of her in her old age. It was the least she could do to her mother-in-law. After all, she was family. Not long after the house burned down, an insurance check arrived in the mail for damage. Nanny cashed it, and a few days later, Arlie's mother died in her sleep. Nanny left to live with her sister, Dovey, who was suffering from cancer. She promised to take care of her sick sister in exchange for a place to crash. After Nanny moved in, Dovey's cancer quickly took a turn for the worst. She passed away on June 30th, just nine months after the passing of Arlie. Nanny's killing spree was clearly escalating. Are you looking for a new adventure? Did you ever want to visit the city where all your nightmares reside? Well, you're in luck. Join us, your tour guides, Christine and Jen, to visit Nopeville, where you will be personally escorted on an all-inclusive trip through the city and see all possibilities of terror and fright. You'll see all sorts of things on your tours, including, but definitely not limited to, the paranormal, true crime, the supernatural, and more. If you're into all of that and enjoy a little dark humor, book your tour today and nope right along with us. Check us out on our website at nopevillepodcast.com to see where you can listen to Nopeville today. Welcome back to episode 10 of The Jury Room. I can't believe we've already made it 10 episodes. It's definitely been a journey, and I am extremely thankful for the platform that we are creating. With that being said, I have met some incredible people along the way, other podcast hosts. I mean, you name it. I have met some some wonderful people, people that... I never in a million years would cross paths with. So for that, I am extremely, extremely thankful for that. Welcome to the new year. It's 2021. I'm not even going to say I hope it's better than 2020 because, well, we fucking said that about 2020, about 2019. So let's make 2021 a year to remember. I hope you're enjoying today's episode. Nanny Doss is, well, she's a fuck, she's crazy. I mean, she grew up in a very toxic, unloving environment from a very young age and has been, was tortured by her mom and her dad. and, And so this is a result of, well, frankly, of her being a fucking crazy person. So I hope you're enjoying that story. Today's missing person case. I found on the FBI website. Uh, It's Abby Lynn Patterson. She went missing on September 5th, 2017, around 1130 a.m. She left her home on East 9th Street in Lumberton, North Carolina, and was seen getting into a Brown Buick. Patterson has not been seen since, and has not had any contact with her family or friends. Now, Abby was born on February 15th, 1997. She has brown hair, brown eyes. She's 5'7", 140 pounds. Uh, She's female and Caucasian. Patterson has a tattoo of a bird on her shoulder and a birthmark on the back of her right thigh. She was last seen wearing brown shorts and a white shirt. I highlight these missing person cases because we need to bring attention to them. So, Abby, if you're out there, you know, get in contact with your family. If anyone out there has any information regarding the whereabouts of Abby Lynn, they're asked to call the FBI's Charlotte Field Office at 704-672-6100 or the Lumberton Police Department at 910-671-3845. I'll link to the the article below. You can always submit an anonymous tip online. Uh, But let's try to help her family. Let's try to help bring some answers to her family. Now, I know 2020 was full of news, and probably 2021 hopefully is full of good news. But the stories that I have to share today, I, I've already talked about one. I've talked about a few times and just the mere fact that I have to talk about it again is fucking frustrating. So as you guys know, there was a Tyson meat packing plant in Iowa that had a coronavirus betting pool going on. Well, good on Tyson for firing all of management one of the management people who were fired decided that he wanted to speak out. So I will go ahead and read the headline and we can go from there. So fired Tyson foods manager says COVID office pool was a morale boost. The fuck? How is that a morale boost? This guy goes on to say how they would never intentionally hurt people and how They took care of their employees and all this garbage, nonsense, human trash shit to say. So fuck you, dude, and fuck you for betting on people getting sick. The second story that I wanted to share was a bit of a good news story, and we definitely need a lot more good news. Uh, So the headline reads, a police officer paid for a family's Christmas groceries instead of charging the two women with shoplifting. So a police officer in Massachusetts went out, of his own, went out of his way with his own money to buy Christmas dinner for a family in need instead of charging two women with shoplifting. Matt Lima, thank you for reaching inside of yourself and finding the kindness to provide for this family in need. And not make their holidays worse. So thank you. As always, don't forget to like, subscribe, leave a review. Follow me, email me. As always, there will be links below for for case suggestion, missing persons, episode feedback. If you don't want to leave it on a public form. To the people who have submitted general case suggestions, thank you. I'm working on it. It's been a hectic december and hopefully january will you know slow down a little bit and i can follow up with those and you know get those together and put them out for you other than that i hope you have a wonderful new year and let's start off 2021 on the right foot and i hope you enjoy the rest of the nanny Doss story thanks for listening greetings i'm declassified dave i'm mystery mike i'm slick frank sanders join us on the hush hush society conspiracy hour mondays where we look into the dark secrets of the conspiratorial world we'll explore the likes of government cover-ups the existence of otherworldly beings unexplained phenomena and cryptids we tackle these topics with an open mind a sense of humor and dapper drippage find us on facebook twitter and instagram and listen on all podcast platforms. According to Shelby Green, anything that annoyed Arsenic Annie, another name given to Nanny during her eventual trial, was met with elimination. If killing people brought in a little extra income, an insurance policy here or there, well, she considered that a bonus payment for her cleverness if you will and fitting with her dark side nanny was clever very very intelligent it's been said that she was able to get away with her crimes because of the backwards places she lived and the naive times that's simply not true where and when she lived had nothing to do with it i know the temperament of the people that she familiarized They can be quite suspicious and alert to hypocrisy, but Nanny was an actress. She fooled so many people, laymen and professionals, during a killing spree that lasted more than 20 years. On her own, once again, still searching for her perfect prince, Nanny scrapped the lonely hearts column for a new, fresher, More promising correspondence association for singles. The Diamond Circle Club. A sort of e-harmony for the 1950s. For $15 a year, members could receive a monthly newsletter introducing newcomers who were all looking for the same thing. Love. Now, 47, Nanny was running out of time to find her perfect match. She was willing to take anyone she could get. And just so happened to be retired businessman Richard L. Morton of Kansas. She traded the luscious scenery of Lexington for the cornfields of Kansas and wed the man in October of 1952. Morton described Nanny as the sweetest and most wonderful woman I have ever met in his letters to her. The half Native American man was tall, dark, and handsome nanny was entranced this older man from rural kansas just might be the one she'd been waiting for for so so long indeed morton showered his new wife with presents something that nanny had never experienced before but appreciated right away she felt that morton had put her on this pedestal she deserved and she was finally happy home at last with with her one true love. Unfortunately, her happiness was crushed pretty quickly. Just two months into their marriage, Morton began leaving for hours at a time, claiming he was running errands. After following him on one of his outings, she discovered he was cheating on her. He was apparently showering his girlfriend with gifts too, because the retired businessman was drowning in debt nanny was devastated she had once again married too quickly once again let herself be blinded by the promise of better things to come of infinite unconditional love soon she was back to responding to ads in the lonely hearts column which she would write while locked in the bathroom so her new husband couldn't watch her she described herself in her letters as a widow was looking for romance she received replies in the dozens and was confident that she would find a new husband easily now she just needed to rid herself of husband number four as quickly as she had married him there was just one problem nanny's father james passed away back home in alabama and her mother Lou had decided to move to kansas to live with her oldest daughter as Terry Manor writes, In January 1953, Lou came to stay. She had obviously picked a bad time. After a couple of days with her daughter, she felt ill with chronic stomach pains and died. Indeed, Nanny had done the unthinkable. So void of empathy, of human emotion, and so driven by her own selfish desires, she was willing to, to kill her own mother like it meant nothing. Three months after her mother's death, her husband died of identical symptoms. Nanny was unstoppable, or so she thought. After burying Morton, Nanny left Kansas to meet another one of her romantic correspondents, Sam Doss, a 59-year-old Tulsa native with firm Christian beliefs. Sam was nothing like Nanny's previous husbands. Sam never drank, never smoked, and was well-dressed, often sporting a tie, and went to bed by 9.30 every night. He expected his wife to do the same, of course. Sam was a highway inspector with good credit who never spent lavishly and cared about his responsibilities. He knew only... That Nanny was a widow and wanted to help her heal. He was happy to be married to a stable, kind woman who was committed to housework and cooked him delicious dinners. Nanny, however, was bored with Sam. She was not used to a life of free of drinking and chaos, resented that she had nothing to resent about Sam. There was However, one household rule that drove Nanny absolutely mad. Sam forbade romance novels and mindless television. He thought books and television should be educational and never used for nonsensical entertainment. In a huff exacerbated that she couldn't enjoy her favorite pastime, Nanny left the man and headed for her home state of Alabama. Sam sincerely loved Nanny and begged for her to return to him. To prove how devoted he was to her, he sent her money in his letters, even rearranging his bank account so that Nanny could have full access to it. Finally, he took out two life insurance policies. Nanny would be the beneficiary Nanny came back to him right away, but their marriage didn't last much longer. After dinner one night, Nanny presented him with homemade prune cake, baked with love. After eating it, Sam became extremely ill, vomiting all night and suffering from terrible spasms. He did not, however, die. Instead, he stayed in bed for days vomiting so much that he lost 16 pounds. Finally, he was sent to the hospital where he remained in a doctor's care for 23 long days. In the hospital, doctors found that Sam had a severe infection in his digestive tract, though they could not figure out what caused it. When Sam finally returned home, Nanny welcomed him with a hot cup of coffee with two cups of sugar and a spoonful of arsenic. By midnight, he was dead. This time though, Nanny wasn't gonna get away with it. Sam's doctors, who had released him on a good bill of health just the day before, immediately suspected foul play. They tricked Nanny into allowing an autopsy, explaining that that would help them understand what had happened so they could save more lives in the future. In the autopsy, they found enough loads and loads of arsenic. Nanny Doss was arrested. Nanny was coined the name Giggling Granny following her hours-long interrogation, during which she giggled like a little girl after almost every question. She also held a romance magazine the entire interrogation, and would read the pages instead of listening to the authorities. When asked if she murdered Sam, she replied, Oh boys, come on now, I killed nobody. I don't know why you think I did. The head investigator, Ray Page, told Nanny that he had evidence, and that he knew three of her previous husbands had died under similar circumstances. Nanny still refused to admit guilt, Finally, Paige probed her. There are others too, aren't there? A lot of people around you dropped dead over the last couple of decades. And their ghosts are coming back to haunt you. They are here, Nanny. In this room. Put them to rest, Nanny. Put them to rest. Finally, the police confiscated her romance magazine. They promised to return it to her only if she confessed to the murders. That did it. One by one, Nanny confessed to killing each of her husbands. After she signed each confession, she would say, she said out loud, my conscience is clear. She did not, however, admit to killing her children, grandchildren, sister, mother, or mother-in-law. She told officers that she would never harm her own blood kin. Still, it is clear that that she was to blame for their sudden and remarkably similar demises. When interviewed by reporters, Charlie Braggs, Nanny's first and only surviving husband, said, Nanny was always running off with one man or another, never home, and was about town more than me. And anyway, to tell you the truth, I was glad when she was off. It got to a point where I was afraid to eat anything she cooked. I smelled a rat. Charlie asked for his daughter's bodies to be autopsied, but his request was never granted. At trial, Nanny Doss faced the death penalty. If granted, she would be the first woman to be put to death in the state of Oklahoma. Reporters asked the serial killer grandmother what she believed her punishment to be. Nanny replied, through laughter, Why anything? Anything they care to do is alright with me. In court, she pleaded guilty to the murders of her four husbands. Judge Elmer Adams asked her, You understand that all that is left for the court to decide between a life or death sentence? Nanny replied with a smile, Yes, sir. You want to plead guilty? I do. On May 17, 1955, Nanny Doss was sentenced to life in prison. She was not given the death penalty because Judge Adams did not want to sentence a woman to death. Doss spent 10 long years in prison, which she absolutely hated. Not long into her sentence, she stated that she wished that she had received the death penalty after all because life spent staring at prison walls was unbearable for her she did joke though that when they got short-handed in the kitchen here i always offer to help out but they never let me on the 10th anniversary of her prison sentence nanny passed away from leukemia she never did find her prince Thanks for listening, and remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room. every harvest moon, a talk show comes along that is so groundbreaking, raising the bar to such heights that other podcasts step back and say, wow, that show's got it figured out. With a host tempered in focus, commitment, and sheer will, this is The Derek Duval Show. Pop culture, news, and interviews with fascinating people that channel the great Edward R. Murrow and Walter Cronkite. The Derek Duvall Show. Find him on Twitter and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show. And find his new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Podchaser. The Derek Duvall Show. The best thing to happen to hump Day since the Geico camel. What, what, Now, that was the story of Nanny Doss. Please join me in a moment of silence for all of her victims. From children to adults and these senseless, unnecessary killings. Thanks for listening to The Jury Room. Don't forget to like, subscribe, leave a review. iTunes, Podchaser, Audible, anywhere you can leave a review, please do. It helps me out tremendously. Thanks for listening.